Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope you are doing well. And today I've got a conversation with Dave Snowden. And it's a conversation from our recent summit that we did earlier this year, 2022. And there's so many good conversations in that summit that I've been releasing them recently on this podcast so that they get a wider audience. And so today with Dave, we'll be talking about some of his recent critiques of the notion of mindsets and how we hold those in perhaps an overly simplistic way. And also his critiques of adult development theory. Recently, Dave and others like Nora Bateson have been making these critiques of of the notion of um, linear stage-like developmental theories. And I think they're making some really important points. And I think also perhaps Dave is sometimes guilty of arguing against a straw man. So I'll let you be the judge of that. This conversation in the summit brought with it a lot of brilliant reflections from those that listened in and also a lot of frustration from those people. And I'm sure Dave would really appreciate that 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 happened because I think that's partly a role he likes to play. So so I'll I'll let you make your own mind up. And I'd certainly like to continue at some point on this podcast, this, this ongoing conversation around, is it time for us to, to challenge the ways we've been holding adult development theory? So perhaps we'll get around to that at some point. Just to say a few more words about Dave. Dave is a, a thought leader in the field of knowledge management and the application of complexity science. He's known for the development of the Kinevin framework, which I think is fantastic. And if you don't know about that, then you really should check it out. He's the founder and chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge, which is a management consulting firm specializing in complexity science and sense making. All right. So that all being said, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Dave Snowden. Dave, great to be with you today. And um, how are you doing, first of all? I'm fine. Yeah, COVID test, but no overt symptoms, so I'm, I'm surviving. Right. Good, good. Well, appreciate you you being here. And I, I wanted to speak to you because of the articles you'd written recently. Uh, one was about mindsets, and one was about adult development theory. And you were, you know, you were critiquing and speaking for what was maybe a good thing about those theories, but crit- you know, critiquing them as well. So let's just unpack those if you're up for that. Mm, sure, no problem. Yeah. Well, I just maybe the good question then is just like what what inspired you to write the articles? Um, probably a sort of level of frustration. I, I, I put them in the category of attack blogs, which I generally do when I'm feeling angry enough about something to say, oh, the hell with it, I'll write it. Um, but the the I, I made it two blogs because I was making two separate points. My problem with mindset is I think it's the wrong way of asking the question. Um, so I don't think it's helpful. All right. Um, and I came up with an alternative. My problem with adult development theory is more fundamental. So I'm not quite as extreme as Nora Bateson in saying it's eugenics, but I actually don't disagree with her that much. Right? And I had a run-in with another coach on social media the other day who said, you know, we, we needed to be humble in taking people down their development journeys. And I said, you just made my point for me. What, what is it about you that you have to be humble to lead me on a pathway? This is elitism. Yeah. So the thing on adult development theory I'm more concerned about, and you've kind of like got two extremes on that. 
One is the sort of clear pseudoscience, which is spiral dynamics and the whole integral stuff and jade and all those sort of things. The other is the sort of semi-respectable end, which I put John Keegan in and others. Oh, yeah, Robert Keegan, yeah. yeah. Robert Keegan, sorry, Robert Keegan. But yeah. the trouble is that they're, if, if you trace all of that back, it goes back to experiments by Piaget, which have been disproved and not replicated. And this whole industry is built on this. It's called the woozel effect in social sciences, if you don't know it. So it's from Winnie the Pooh, all right? So Winnie the Pooh goes around the spinny, you know, a small woodland in the snow, and then finds his footsteps when he comes back. So he thinks there's another strange creature called a woozle. So he goes round again, and now there are two woozles. And then Piglet joins him, and they go around together. So now there are three woozles and one whistle, and it all gets a bit scary, all right? But what the woozle effect is, when somebody's taken a path, everybody else follows the same path and doesn't challenge the original assumptions. The experiments aren't there. I think the other thing in that field, come back to mindset later, is this fundamental confusion of development into adulthood, which is a biological cognitive function, and the assumption that that continues into adulthood. So one of the things I'm working on at the moment with people who've taken adult development theory um, is to say these aren't linear stages. They're not progressive. You don't go from one to the other, and you certainly don't need some you know, patriarchal, patronizing coach leading you to the thing with due humbleness, which is what Jonathan, I think, was proposing, right? But you can actually say these are interesting aspects of how human beings would behave. So in complexity terms, these are potentially what we call modulators. Mm. And so if I take any of the adult development theories, I can convert them into modulators and get rid of the stages. And then I can start to look at in what context where, yeah, did I exhibit different types of behavior? Because the other point about adult development theory, it's this sort of, I'll, I'll come back to this, a bigger issue in a minute. Now I'll do it now. Is it fundamentally assumes the individual is either predisposed to something, that's the sort of psychometric testing, or has to go through a series of stages and they can never revert. It's this progressive hierarchical concept. Mm. And the reality is people with no experience whatsoever can exhibit what, Ian Keegan sees as highly mature within a specific context without the need for training or coaching. So the way a modulator works, you say, look, I've got these things, they're rather like magnets, right? Um, which mm. can change in intensity and change in polarity. And there's kind of like all these metal bits in between the magnets and they form a shape. And the shape changes according to which of the magnets comes more into play. And so that's why we say a complex adaptive system is modulated. It's not subject to causality and it's certainly not linear. Yeah. So then it gets quite interesting. And this is the stuff we're now doing with software is to gather people's day-to-day -day experiences, get them to interpret those experiences and see which of the, and we build the Keegan stages into the signifier set by which they interpret their, their material. And then we see when those different things came into play in different contexts. And we can start to say, well, okay, you could achieve more of these, fewer of that, or have you thought about doing it this way? And that, to me, is much more where coaching needs to go. I think this, this highly elitist linear progression steps, and you can almost see some people getting their rocks off on it, to be honest, about I'm better at leading people on this pathway mm. to enlightenment. Yeah? And, yeah, the link with Integral didn't help, the link with the Ken Wilber cult didn't help, and the link with Spiral Dynamics, which is quite appalling, didn't help, right? Mm. 
Mm. I still remember being told by Don Beck I didn't understand him because I'd failed to achieve turquoise status. I was just an angry, angry blue. And I mean, that's the classic put down, all right? It's the old cult thing. You haven't achieved the enlightenment status, therefore you can't criticize me. And remember, mm. I had badges made then with proud to be brown. Right. And, and you know, I said, well, that's not a spiral dynamics color. I said, well, that's exactly the point I'm making. This is hokum pokum pseudoscience. It's, it's bugger all to do with reality. Yeah. So I think on the stage development theory, think of it as modulators and think of it as highly contextual and making people aware of that. I think then it becomes useful. And I think the criticism of mindset is the same thing. And I talk about people's mindset, but what the hell does that mean? Can I ask and you about the... Can I, can I, sorry yeah, to interrupt, yeah. just because there's so much in what you just said that I want to make. Well, unpack it um, and we'll so come back to mindset. I've basically got mindsets underlined here, but because um, there's so many questions I want to ask you. I also have been inquiring. I, I you know, I'm, I've, um, Jennifer Garvey-Berg is a friend of mine and I really appreciate her work and I've appreciated Keegan's work. And yes, also been questioning deeply this notion of these like, stage like unfolding which seems to be really um embedded within a kind of like a colonial western anglo-american mindset of, of like linear progress and excludes other notions of of how change might occur so there's like there's a couple of questions i want to ask you one is you said like yeah when um when we're growing up there's a kind of biological cognitive functioning taking place and then we assume that in adulthood it continues like that. And that, that actually sounds like you're saying that's a mistake. I'm just wondering if you have a notion of how it, how it continues in adulthood. Is it like our whole notion of development then needs to be questioned and reformulated? Yeah, it does. And I think that there are two things we need to think about. One is what you've got heavily based in, um, I refuse to say Western because it isn't Western. It's North American, Northern European. Okay, people. right. Yeah is a cognitive assumption of consciousness. Yeah, you know, it goes right. back to Kant and the Enlightenment and everything is about the... In- and, and it's the also, Greeks maybe even, yeah. No, well, it goes back to some of the Greeks, but not the more intelligent yeah. ones, right? right. I mean, everything goes back to the Greeks if you work on it. <laughs> I've got a degree in philosophy, so don't take me there. Um, and I think, and I'll come back to a Greek thing on that. So you, you've got this basic assumption that every, society is entirely composed of individuals. That starts with the Reformation, with the Enlightenment. You get concepts like the social contract. It's all about individuals, individual response. Yeah. By the way, that's the problem with mindset as well. It puts everything on the individual. And it then talks about rational decision making. And again, it talks about the individual. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. One is we know that consciousness is a distributed function. It's not co-located with the brain. That's the Cartesian error. And vast majority of the decisions we made are actually made by our body with the brain only checking in afterwards the event in case it needs to learn from it, right? Andy Clark's and my work indicate that a huge amount of consciousness is held in distributed structures like narrative structures in society. So focusing on the individual is actually just really, really bad science because the individual effectively is like a coalescent point or a sparking point in a, in a dense interweaving of networks yeah, with varying levels of responsibility and causality. So that's one fundamental issue with it, right? The other issue is the whole issue about brain plasticity. So if we just take the cognitive side, 
Um, there are clear stages like up till two or three and before and after puberty where the brain is going through massive changes and some of that is co-evolving with the body. So there are things which are not possible, but once you get past puberty, it stabilizes a lot unless it's trauma, trauma-based, and it tends to be context-based. Okay? Um, and it's also socially based. So again, the idea of adult development, I think the danger is it's taking something from one context, childhood development, applying it to the other, basically without any evidence to support it. It's just a, oh, this is cute. Why don't we apply it there? Yeah. And it's like all the psychometric tests you see, they all claim to be science-based. Right? Now, they can't all be right. The reason is they construct a questionnaire based on their theory. They issue that to a group of people because the theory is embedded into the questionnaire. You get massive confirmation bias back. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so I think the research based on that is weak. So the fact that we can be significant, our brain plasticity can be radically triggered by social context. Yeah, and social context can also determine how we respond very significantly. And, you know, we're also now working increasingly, for example, on distributed decision making into groups of three. We're, we're moving on crews, not teams. Human beings evolve to make decisions in extended families, clans and tribes, not as individuals. Mm. So those two basic points basically say, you know, guys, you know, adult development theory was really useful. It can you know, good consultants like Jennifer can make it work because it's it, it's like, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around a bit. I used astrology once with IBM senior executives without them realizing it mm. and got better results than Myers-Briggs. Right. Because anything which gets people to look at things from different perspectives has value and they will self-report results. Yeah. So it's not that you can't get benefit from these things. Yeah. The danger is when you ascribe literal meaning to them rather than metaphorical meaning. And when you right. start to put yourself in, and this is where I really object. And I don't think Jennifer does this, but other people do. I mean, Jennifer uses cannabinoid a lot as well, and we work with her. Yeah. It, when you put yourself in the position of superiority, my role is to guide you through these stages. The minute somebody starts to say that, I get really worried about them. Mm. Well, I, I think there's that. Yeah, I get that. I get that because there's an arrogance in it, isn't there? There's an assumption that I know what's better than you and that I have an all-seeing eye. I've, I know so much that I can, you know, chart yeah, that, exactly that where you might want to. Some, yeah. Somebody saying we need to be humble as we guide people through these stages. That's the classic cult-type response. Yeah. Well, let, can I, I ask a question yeah. here, which is um, – I, I want to, and it leads to like what you said about it being, uh, there being modulators. It, um, what's the question? Let me see if I can get a hold of it. It's like, um, oh, and I don't think you're saying this, but it's like one might, when I hear you talk about it, get the sense of like, we're just then kind of um, at the, you know, we're, we're, we're at the behest or the control of our social situation. You need to move on to mindset for me to answer that one. All right, so then let me maybe that tease this up, but because then are we not saying there's any value in that we could actually become aware of our embeddedness within a certain social context is, in a way that would then allow us to buy that, all right? But be sitting skillful. Down with, sitting down yeah. with somebody who's starting assumption is that they've reached a state of enlightenment and I haven't is probably not a good way to do that, right? Of course. Um, <laughs> right. But the, and, what I'm saying is, yeah. Yeah, and and there's also an awful lot in the coaching movement of what I call faux Buddhism. 
Mm. So people taking Buddhist and Taoist traditions and reinterpreting them in a Western concept of individualism and the leader and the guru. I mm. mean, that's what Wilbur did. I mean, it, he basically, he, he, I don't think Wilbur remotely understands Buddhism. I think he's reinterpreted Buddhism into an American libertarian paradigm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, and everybody forgets that Taoism works because it's matched with Confucianism. It's the interaction between the two, which is actually produces stability. They, they just take these things and it's the sort of, oh, if you just sit down and be aware of things, it will work. And the reality is, and this is consciousness theory, all right, we're embodied, enacted, embedded and extended. Mm. Um, it's why if I want to have a difficult conversation with somebody, we go for a walk because actually mm. the cognitive function changes if you're walking over, over sitting down. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot. There's a, it's far more sophisticated and it's far more messy than these consultancy sales will actually support. Mm. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And and therefore, what what are you advocating? So maybe this brings mm. us back to mindsets and also this question around like modulators. Like, uh, like uh, how are you are you <clears throat> developing coaching approaches yeah, that when, work when, with this modulating approach? I'm working in Berlin on it in a week, in 10 days' time to, to finalize it. So what we're doing is kind of like an app-based Gemba system in which you can capture people's descriptions of you, not evaluations. Yeah. Never, ever ask any human being to evaluate another human being because you can't trust the results. But they can describe the interactions. So what we're doing is descriptions with modulators hidden in the way people interpret those experiences. And then we can produce a map of how in different contexts, different modulators had different relative strength. Yeah. Mm. And then we can feedback that to the individual. So what that allows people to do is to see themselves in different contexts, but critically then look at the material and say, well, what I need to do is actually have more stories told about me like those and fewer stories like those. Mm. Now, this is a new theory of change. Instead of saying I have to be a servant leader, which is one of those other nonsense phrases. Yeah. You say, I need more stories about me as a leader like these and fewer like those. Mm. There's no right. judgment involved in that statement. And the stories provide the context. And notice they're always plural, not single. Right. Yeah? Could you, could you give that. me an example of that? I don't know if that's possible. Okay. So let me, let me give an example of what we do on 360, which we're adapting for yeah. the coaching market. All right. So traditional 360 is, you know, every year it's an annual game. Yeah. Everybody games it. You, you get, you know, the leader nominates X number of people and you get asked to evaluate them, yeah, on a series of Likert scales. So it might be, yeah, does the manager involve me in decision-making? Yeah, scale of zero to 10, that's a common one. And I remember when we got this in IBM, I phoned HR and I wasn't, they didn't, HR didn't like me very much because they discovered I'd done the astrology instead of Myers-Briggs things and a few other evil things in my life. I enjoyed taunting them. And I said, how the hell am I meant to answer this? Because I've got several managers. Some of them consult me, some of them don't. Some of them should, some of them shouldn't. You're asking a context-free question in a context-specific world. And let's just say that didn't go down well. We take a different approach. So you're a leader and you can do this, say, in the two or three months building up to a formal appraisal if you want. You nominate people who interact with you. Every time they interact, they describe the interaction. No more than that. Or take a picture. It's only description. Then we give them a series of triangles. And one of the triangles, for example, says in this story, the leader's behavior was altruistic, assertive, analytical. So three positive qualities. 
So six triangles, all with positive qualities. So you can't say anything negative about the leader whatsoever. And that's really important because that handles the ethics. But then the leader looks at the pattern and says, oh my God, I'm all analytical assertive. I'm not altruistic. They click on the couple of altruistic examples and say, I need to create more of these and fewer of those. So that allows people effectively to evolve or migrate in context without judgment as they move forward. Yeah, now that's what we're doing on the coaching side. Mm, that's fascinating to me, yeah. And, <laughs> and it, allows, double, and it yeah. allows feedback as a team. So I can say, well, when I'm in a team, we get this response. When I'm on my own, I get that response. And we can build that as longitudinal data over time. And what I like is the, da- the data's all emerging out of reality if I can yeah. use that word rather than an imposed reified set of concepts that are then actually yeah. um, I mean, not attuned. The bills on the fact we know you can't ever trust anybody's retrospective judgment. Mm. It's why we talk about lessons learning, not lessons learned. Because any post hoc evaluation of something, people adjust their memories to match the needs of the present. And all human beings do that. We can't not do it. Mm. So the closer you get to the point of the experience, the better. And what, how would you invite them, to, say, that leader sees that, oh, I'd actually like to be more altruistic. How would you then invite them to, to practice that? You, know, you like, give do you have an, the system, yeah. you say, would, would you like a coach? Right. If they say, no, don't worry, I can handle it, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. If they yeah. want, and to me, coaching is really important, but it's, there's team coaching, there's individual coaching, and they're different. They require different capabilities, right? Yes. Yeah. And we're now using the same approach, for example, on agile teams. So every time anybody on the team interacts with anybody outside the team, they gather a story, but there's the team being interpreted, then the team look at the results and say, look, as a team, we need more of these, fewer of those, because we're obviously not listening. So again, it's this continuous capture. Mm. And it's the capture of the rich context of what we call micro-narrative, which is day-to-day experience. And give another example, we just finished a big project, which we're now ready to replicate, on old people's homes in the Netherlands. So we've had continuous narrative capture of medical staff, residents and their relatives. Now, originally, that was meant to complement the traditional data, but actually it's ended up the other way around. The traditional data now feeds the narrative system because it's richer. And we can see small patterns of interaction which change the patient's experience, and we can feed those back to nurses. So say nurses, how do you enrich a patient end-of-life experience? Well, they'll tell you they do that. If you say, how would you create more patient stories like this and fewer patient stories like that? It's a non-judgmental thing to which they've got contextual ability to respond. Uh, Yeah, because there's there's a lot of hurt caused by imposing a set of ideals on how people should be um, you know, I think you write about this that we there, there can be harm when we make the implicit explicit sometimes, and um, it's not just that we tend to focus yeah. on one thing, like the whole servant leadership nonsense, or you know, mm-hmm. emotional intelligence, which assumes. I mean, IQ does it doesn't work anywhere. We know IQ is based on false data sets, and then we went emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, and this one something else replacing it on top of it. And they, they, there's this fad cycling consultancy. They always want a single cause. Mm. yeah well you're failing because you haven't got a purpose well actually all the purpose statements are is the old mission statements which failed anyway yeah and it's this desire for the silver bullet you know the magic bullet the magic if only we do this right 
And, you know, and I've been in leadership roles all my time. There's times where you wash people's feet or in my case, cook bloody breakfast for them and wash up afterwards. And there's times where you basically tell people something's completely unacceptable and you fire them, right? Mm. There isn't, there's no single model of human behavior which we should follow. And anytime somebody puts up a two column chart with this is the bad old stuff and this is my bright new shiny thing, I, I do tend to savage it a bit on social media these days. It's it's Manichaeanism. And, and that comes back to the Greeks. Yeah, sorry, favorite topic. There's a classic debate between um, Plato and Aristotle, which goes back and it then manifests in terms of Aquinas and um, Augustine. And you know, if I take this in religious terms, Calvin takes the worst of Augustine, who takes the worst of Plato, right? Who takes the worst of St. Paul, as you go through that. And the problem with Neoplatonism is the assumption there's this underlying abstract. You know, we're all sitting on the floor of a cave looking at a shadow of something which is real behind us. And we need the philosopher king to come and rescue us and point us to reality. Mm. And with that concept, that Neoplatonist concept, comes Manichaeism, the assumption that you, things are either absolutely good or absolutely evil. And I don't think Augustine ever escaped from that heresy. And again, you see that in monetary management theory. There's something out there which is real, which you can be guided to. There's these bad things here and there's these good things here. Now, if you come back to Augustine and Aquinas, so if you come back to Aquinas and Aristotle and modern cognitive neuroscience, basically says, look, guys, this stuff is hugely messy. It's multi-modulators. There isn't a single pathway. There are multiple contextual pathways. It's actually more important to know what you shouldn't do than have a model of what you should do. Mm. And actually, if you look at the history of humans, all of our storytelling traditions tell stories of failure, not of success. Because we know the best way we can teach people is to actually tell them what not to do based on our experience, but then leave open to them to discover novel pathways. If you tell people what those pathways should be, you make them to quote Alistair McIntyre, anxious stutterers in the narrative of their own existence because you're creating dependency on them. Right. That's exquisite. You really, you really, I, I almost like, I was, cause I was going to ask a provocative question, which would be like, what would be your like meta one principle now? Uh, which of course I know, you know, is exactly you're saying what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't have this one thing, which we then hold up as, mm the standard and everything else isn't that, but you named it for me that actually people, yeah, not what we should, we should know what we shouldn't do and then leave people the novel space to. Yeah. And I think that that's a key yeah. principle. All right. And that that's the more stories like this, fewer stories like that. It's, it's what I call the frozen two strategy. So if you haven't watched frozen two yet, go watch it. It's a great complexity movie. Right. And in the middle of frozen two, the real heroine of the frozen series, who's the younger sister without magic right hmm. um sings this beautiful song which has now been made famous because of the ukrainian refugee which is all i can do is do the next right thing now in, if you go back to stuart kaufman that's called the adjacent possible so all you can do is decide where you go next and look again and that's what you want the coaching market should be doing that okay we're here why don't we try going here then we'll look again then we'll go here then we'll look again you don't say you'll do this, then you'll do this, then you do this, then you do this, because that will always be wrong. Just to give you some encouragement, I, I see now more and more coaching uh, doing what you're talking about. You know, like we've talked about this before, like the 
criticizing this closing the gap mm. approach to coaching and just saying what you're saying. Yeah, we, we, we are where we are. And then we see what wants to happen next. What's the next step. And yeah, in I that sense, the coaching coach can be a guide in that it's process. The language you use. So, so more stories like this, fewer stories like that asks an open question, but doesn't close things down. And it's much better if the coach works with somebody on that. The other one is the mindset word, because the trouble with the mindset is it confused three completely different things. So that's what we've been talking about as the three A's. And it took a lot of time to make, it takes a lot of time to make things simple, right? So what we talk about now is agency, assemblage, and affordance. Mm. Now, we may need to find simpler words, but for the moment, I'm using the scientific phrase. So affordance comes from evolutionary biology. It says what options are available to you in the environment. There's no point in being a hyper-involved orchid if you're in the middle of a desert because there's no affordance to exploit that advantage, right? So that's the mapping of the environmental conditions. And all of these, by the way, interact with each other. Assemblage is Deleuze's concept, and we build a lot on that, in that what happens is I tell you a story, you tell me a story, we all like those stories. And part of the problem we got with the adult maturity people is they all sit in this bubble and tell each other self-reinforcing stories. And therefore, it's very difficult for them to escape. It's called an attractor well. And that's actually how Trump works. So I, you know, for my sins, had to read Trump's tweets every morning for four years. And I'm now suffering withdrawal symptoms from righteous indignation. But what Trump did brilliantly was key words to trigger patterns of stories that people were hearing day to day in their communities online which they then couldn't escape, right? And Deleuze has this concept, which I've blogged about several times, called a line of flight, is how do you escape from those attractor worlds? Right. And it will be unique to each context. And then agency is how much agency do you actually have in that threesome? Yeah, sometimes you won't have any agency at all. Sometimes you will have high agency. Sometimes you might have agency in collaboration. So by instead of talking about the mindset issue, we say, well, let's look at agency, affordance, assemblage. You've now got something you can do something with. You're describing the problem in a way that you can take action. Mindset is too abstract. It's too, it's too composite. Yeah? But if you can say, well, we can increase agency. So if you need to make that decision, maybe if you get these two people in these roles to agree with you, we'll authorize you to make it. You've changed the agency structure. You can see what happens and so on. And I think that's the way we're moving on that. So it's a recognition. It's not that you either have free will or you don't have free will. That's a, a nonsense way of phrasing it, right? Sometimes you have more than at others. Yeah. Right. And so actually yeah, what you're saying with those three things, if I've got this right, is, well, let me contrast it. Mindset is, again, individualistic, yeah. and it falls into those traps that you mentioned before right. where it's, it's, not re it's, it's too mechanical, it's three A's allows, yeah, and you're right. The three A's allows for environment, social, and embeddedness, yourself. extent. Yeah. Yes, right, yeah. right, beautiful. Yeah, it's like I did when you know I did this originally on knowledge management, and people are talking about what do we know, and I said, well, actually, what we need to do is what are the artifacts, what are the skills, what are the heuristics, what's the experience, what the, what's the natural talent. You need to ask a question in such a way that people see things from different perspectives, rather than trying to lump everything into a single category. And um, you, you, something that stayed with me is you said attractor wells. And I, it, it this, it's what stayed with me when you talked about um, Keegan's work at seeing them as modulators. And it's this question around 
Oh, what are you doing there? Is it is it like you recognizing that these uh, descriptions of these stages can actually be applied to groups in ways that kind of unleash their potential or you their can, you can, can use them as modulators provided you don't imply they're linear. Right. So it could yeah. well be that stage five can be exhibited by people without going through stage one and four in certain contexts. I've seen so, that. I've seen that. Got it. And you're also encouraging a more experimental approach. Well, if we actually reduce the strength of that modulator, would things get better? Rather than, well, I have to reach level five. Could could we like make that as an example too? Because I think this is so important. And um, you know, I'm just asking this for my own kind of like stupidity in a way, like just to <laughs> really help myself get it. Okay, so let's suppose. I mean, the way we would do that. Well, let me give you a completely unrelated example. So we did a project on child obesity. Now, child obesity has multiple causalities. Yeah, it's not it's not a single one. Yeah. So it's not, you know, and we did the same thing on actually teenage suicide one is a better one, right? So we were looking at teenage suicide. So you've got things like bullying, you've got obesity, you've got child abuse. The factors which feed into to the to teenage suicide are huge and many and various. So rather than run a series of separate projects, which is what the government was doing, we got people in those at-risk groups to either act as journalists or as journal keepers. And then we hid things like obesity bullying into the signifier set. So rather than suggest them, we waited to see if people naturally use them when they had to interpret their experience, because that means they're naturally present. Now that's what we're going to be doing with adult development theory. So are the stages present if people are unprompted or unaware of those stages? Because then you've got genuine data. Yeah. Right. And you also, sorry, this is the physicist in me speaking. No social scientist ever has enough data to form any valid conclusion in the first place. And, you know, if you look at all the adult development theory experiments, none of them had much data. I mean, most of them worked with their own students. You know, that was Cohen, right? Um, or with their own children, Piaget. So you're not dealing with any statistically valid sample. You're dealing with something which is highly cultural specific. What we're trying to move to on the coaching movement is to make those sort of available for multiple coaching environments so we can genuinely get millions of data items over multiple cultures from which we can draw conclusions. So the intervention method becomes the research method rather than, and again, that's a non-linear approach which you need in complexity. Rather than say, I'll do the research, I'll produce the model, I'll impose the model. You say, well, actually, these are provisional models. We'll see what occurs naturally and unnaturally. We'll modify them over time and we'll get real data. Right, right. And that, yeah, really good, really good. And, and, and by the way, that's called yeah. abductive research, not inductive research. Yeah, which I think I've heard you criticize before. A lot of uh, management theory books are based, They're all upon... based on it. They confuse correlation yeah. with causation. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and particularly in recent times, they only take positive cases. They don't study the negative cases. Right. So, yeah, they, for example, basically crap research. To yeah. Point. Yeah. They don't count the, the 10 companies that did the same things as the successful companies, but yeah. then they failed. And yeah, that's yeah. lean startup or or worse still is um, reinventing the organization. The Crops' book, which is, again, is a spiral dynamics one with a teal concept. He just picks the aspect of cases which support his religious theory, he ignores the, case, the aspects which don't support it. 
And I guess the question I have, though, Dave, is, is it, would it then be that you then, from this data, would be able to say, oh, in certain, we can actually create certain contexts that then bring out certain, uh, I, know, I hate to use the word mindsets, but... So yeah. it's what, we're gonna, what we've been looking at at sort of obesity and diabetes too. You, you can say, I, I've got this pattern of experience. Is there any other experience like this? Yeah. So you can then encounter other people's stories, which were interpreted the same way, and you can learn from them. Now, what we're currently talking with one of the big pharma companies, for example, is one of the big problems with disease is that people Google their disease, and then you get a nightmare. Mm. So what we do is we create databases which are indexed the same way you're indexing your journey by people who are genuinely have expertise. So you find things which you know have some scientific validation. So it does that initial screening. But the choice of what you pay attention to is still with you. Mm. Mm. Right. Now that's something I think the coaching market could do, which is yeah. to make advice, is put the advice they would give people in fictional cases into a narrative database so that when people go through their own journey, they can search that and find those examples and make their own decision. It's called conceptual blending. Yeah? What we want to do is to blend together our and other people's experiences to come up with a unique course of action. We don't want to be given a prescriptive one, two, three, four, five template. Yeah. Yeah. Re really uh, agree with you on that. Um, and I, I, I'm going to I'm going to stay with this question and and like I, forgive me if you've already answered it and I'm not getting it. But it's yeah, like, sure. are you are you then with for example with Keegan stages, thinking that oh we'll actually be able to, I, I might be falling into the, the very trap of the one that you've been criticizing the whole time. But I, I guess I'm thinking like, um, and, and maybe I'm maybe I'm like think too much in terms of groups, but I'm I'm also I'm all, almost like wondering if you could, once you've got this data, create situations which would um, allow individuals to enter into one of those stages, which would allow them to collaborate in yeah, the, in the requisite way and and that's create something. something of, be, that, that's what a crew yeah. does. So if you look yeah. at crews, people are ritually yeah. triggered into a very specific function, right? So in an operating theater, the surgeon doesn't try and do the nurse's job and so on. So I think yeah. that's really interesting. But I think also it's the ability for us to discover that some of the Keegan stages, for example, are completely irrelevant because they're used in all contexts in the same way, whereas others right. are context specific. So we can modify and change and gradually that's build it. something which, because all of these things are meaning constructs. Yeah. yeah? And there's, you know, Things that we understand socially now, we couldn't have understood socially 200 years ago. If you look at material engagement theory, for example, um, sorry, we see one of the sources for what we do is the concept of abstract number only evolves in human beings after the Sumerians create clay counting tablets. Right. Right. So the potential was there before, but it doesn't evolve. If you look at epigenetics, and this is more scary, we now know the mechanism by which culture inherits and it's biological. Right. So starting to understand that sort of thing becomes really important. And I have this key phrase is messy coherence is one phrase. Right. The other phrase is coherent heterogeneity. A lot of people have borrowed and stolen those phrases without acknowledgement. But coherent heterogeneity means we need enough different to quote Bates and we need the differences that make a difference. But we need to be cohere when we need to cohere. So the example I normally give of that, all right, is 
you know, I'm a Welsh rugby fan. Um, I support Cardiff, the capital city. You know, we're a highly intelligent group of well-structured players with a disciplined audience who respect the referee and understand rugby and are not too partisan. And then every now and then we have to play these bastards from Planetly who, you know, bribe the referee, you know, foul the thing, have no bloody understanding of rugby whatsoever, right? But when the English arrive, we're Welsh. Right. So, and I think part of the other problem is, and we, we're looking at this on peace and reconciliation at the moment as well, is the enlightenment concept of homogenization is really scary, like really, really scary. Yeah? And what you want is coherent heterogeneity. And the other problem with adult development theory is it tries to homogenize learning, and you can't do that. It, it does feel like that's one of the um, paradigms again i say anglo-american paradigms that's been is that's been deeply questioned right now and and perhaps opening the space yeah, for a pluriverse of different well no, i think you know, actually there's a more fundamental divide there's a famous set of experiments from geography of thought which is worth looking at all right so if you say to people which is the odd one out cow chicken or grass yeah. <laughs> most people from northern europe and north america will say oh it's the grass because it's a vegetable and the other two are animals most people from Latin America, Africa, Asia, and interestingly, the Celtic fringe of the British Isles will basically say, well, it's a chicken because the cow's got a relationship with grass. Mm. And, you know, collectivist cultures judge things by their relationships, whereas atomistic cultures look at the categories, right? Now, the science now is back in, effectively back in relationship. You know, interactions matter more than things. Right. And so I don't think it's a pluriverse. I think it's just getting back to something which is much more natural. We evolved as social creatures, not as individual creatures. Yeah. And we evolved to actually, I mean, this is the work I'm doing with Tyson and other indigenous people in Australia. And this is not getting romantic about indigenous knowledge because some of it isn't very nice, all right? But we also evolved to live in a physical environment. And a lot of our learning is dependent on physical experiences. It's not just based on cognitive function and coaching. It's based on experience. And we've done a lot of disruptive leadership. I mean, I've done several in my time where I've dumped leaders, say, into Yonkers in New York in communities for a week to act as cleaners. And say, and come back and say, what have you learned about leadership? Right. And that's far more effective than, you know, trying to lecture them or coach them. Yeah. That's really good, really good. And th this has been a really rich conversation. I think I just want to ask one last question, which is, um, yeah, you've been saying this throughout, but, and I, I, th I think I ask you this once a year, what, what, um, what, what would you, um, what would be the word I want to use? Like invite the coaching community to, to, okay. to reflect uh, on. A couple of to... comments, all right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm having to write 500 words at the moment on the advice I would give my longer, younger self, and I'm getting quite depressed in the process of writing it. <laughs> but one of the things I would say positive, if you know something is coherent, you never know it's right, but you know it's coherent, don't compromise because sooner or later people will catch up. What do you mean by that? Wait, like, yeah. Okay, so a lot of people say, well, okay, that's all well and good, but it's too abstract, it's too scientific, can't we just do this? And if you think they're just doing this is wrong, just carry on saying it's wrong, even if you lose business. Because when it doesn't work, they'll come back to you. Yeah? Right. And this is what I call um, flexures curves, which is one of the three big models in my firmament, the Canadian flexures curves and the asteroid framework, right? Flexures curve says, 
there's a point where the existing paradigm starts to break down, where people are open to novelty and you have a window of opportunity. That's where we are on coaching at the moment because the existing paradigm is breaking down big time. Yeah. Yeah. COVID accelerated that. So the advice to the coaches is, you know, join us. We're going to do a lot of this in open source. Yeah. With, you know, we're an action research group. We've got to make some money out of it, but fundamentally coaching gambers are the way to go. We're happy for anybody to use the Gamba system with their own theory of development. We're not going to mandate a theory of development. That's kind of like open. So come, you know, come and play, I think is the invitation. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. I hope that brings people your way because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be inspired by what you've shared today and perhaps maybe a little um, uncomfortable by some of their beliefs being disturbed, which is what I like. So uh, thanks, Dave. Yes, pleasure. Just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.